You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, hi. Yeah. Hey, well, long time, right? <laughs> it's been a long time. So we are now in 2021. And yeah. partway through 2020, we did what a lot of people wanted to do. We quit. We went to Raccoon. <laughs> we, quit. Yeah, we, we quit making episodes. We took a break. And I mean, isn't that like, I mean, I think a lot of people would have preferred to hibernate through 2020. That's what I was thinking. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a cocoon. And I'm just waiting to emerge. You know, I definitely missed the podcast, but things were, you know, online learning was hard. I, I was on overload in the fall. And so my things really built up. Doing everything online just requires extra work. You know, I feel oh, yeah. like things that I would just explain to my class, I had to type out or make a video. And something that was like literally I could walk into a class and do was like a four hour video. And I'm like, what am I doing? How how are your classes going? It's it's been a challenge. Everything that like things have been working in years past, it's updating, trying to figure out how to how to let it play for the folks in front of you and the folks who are remote because we do the hybrid thing. It's definitely been a, a challenging year uh, because you definitely are playing to multiple audiences constantly. One of the things that we did actually do with my freshmen in particular, we read Timothy Davis's or sections of it uh, in the Shadow of Liberty, the history of slavery, four presidents, and five black lives. It's kind of like on Wednesdays, everyone's remote. And so do discussions. And so they would read a section of it. We would talk about it, then connect it to what we had just been learning about. And that actually was pretty successful. It was fun to have those conversations on those Wednesdays. Yeah. And we have talked about that book and had Kenneth C. Davis on our podcast before, which is which is great. Although I think the last time he came on and literally talked about the 1917 (laughs) influenza. Right. So. I am a little scared to bring Kenneth C. Davis back on because it seems like we have him on and then the, the human, you know, the, the serious social problem that he addresses comes to fruition in the near future after. Do you have oh, any worries about that? Of, of course, of course, especially with, with what, what was happening. My, my class, it was a, on Wednesday, we're remote and my poor students, I was like, look, nothing's really going to happen, but it might be interesting to watch. And then, of course, there, there's an insurrection on, on Wednesday during mm-hmm. my uh, my freshman class. It was very surreal. Yeah. So that's, that's a topic that social studies teachers are going to have to confront. Right. And there's a lot of important factors, right? There's a lot of issues going on related to how we got to the point of an insurrection and how we talk about that with kids in the classroom. And we've certainly talked a lot about, you know, political, you know, teachers, political disclosure. We had Wayne Jernell on, and we've talked about how you have classroom discussions about, you know, controversial issues or current events, if you want to say. Um, but then, of course, we've also had a lot of conversations about how you talk about things like white supremacy and racism. And but there's other factors too, misinformation. Right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. So it's a real challenge to, to figure out how to talk about some of these issues. So why don't we actually bring our, our illustrious guests to join us to, to start talking about this kind of stuff? Kenneth C. Davis, welcome back to the podcast. Best friend of the pod. It is always a pleasure to talk to you guys. It is always a pleasure to talk about this stuff. 
Let me just first say, it has been a while since we, we've spoken. And first of all, Dan, I think the word you're looking on for there is hiatus. You know, that always mm. makes it sound so good. Well, we were on hiatus for a while, you know. I like so, it. You know, it just gives it that ring of authenticity. So it's been an, uh, a long time since we've spoken. Yes, I, uh, I think that we last spoke about more deadly than war, which of course is the history of the Spanish flu, influenza of 1918, and its connection to World War I. When I wrote the book, it was published in 2018, a little over two years ago. Everyone asked at the time, well, can it happen again? And I said quite frankly, yes, it will. It will happen again. It's not if, it, it is when. So here we are two years later, and this is a beyond most people's worst expectations, certainly given the fact that we did know about pandemics. Maybe most people didn't know about the Spanish flu, but an awful lot of people did. And I remember reading Dr. Redfield, head of the CDC for most of the past year, who said in 2018 that the idea of a pandemic kept him awake at night. And then when it actually happened, it seemed like he hadn't really lost any sleep at all. Um, the, the, the failure of the CDC among a great many federal agencies led from the top down is one of the catastrophic failures of leadership in American history. And I, and I don't say that blithely or glibly. It, it's really astonishing. 400,000 Americans are now dead because of a really poorly led national response to this catastrophe. And we should have known better. Why should we have known better? History. History taught us everything we needed to know about the Spanish flu and a pandemic and what we should do. Obviously, influenza pandemic 1918, very different medically and otherwise from what we are going through right now. But some of the lessons were very clear. Lying and propaganda kill people. Uh, that was true 102 years ago. It's true now. Misplaced priorities are very lethal. If you neglect the public health in order to keep business going, or in the case of 1918, to keep the war effort going, that is going to cost lives. And finally, ignoring science is, is more deadly than war. Uh, and so those are the lessons of history. And for all of my career of doing this, and I started writing now, it's hard to believe, don't know much about history, um, which is the first book I published in the history category, came out 30 years ago. Uh, it's astonishing for me to say that, but um, it's, it's true. And for most of that 30 years, I've been saying that, you know, history really matters. And I, I don't have to tell that to you guys, I'm sure, but we do have to tell it to everyone else. And it matters because the, the past informs everything that happens in the present. And we should learn the lessons of the past. There's really valuable lessons in what was done right and what was done wrong. But here we are, and we haven't learned those lessons. Now, this subject we're talking about now, I, I hate to be, you know, the doom bringer here, the gloom and doom bringer here. But yeah, we, we have 
are in the midst of a moment when democracy has been under an extraordinary stress test. And Strongman is the story of how five dictators, five strongmen, the most notorious perhaps of the 20th century, um, destroyed democracy or any hope of democracy in their nations at enormous cost uh, in death and destruction. And those five men are, uh, are very briefly Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Chairman Mao Zedong of China, and Saddam Hussein of Iraq. So very, very important lessons for our day that democracy does not die in darkness, first of all. It often is decapitated in broad daylight while thousands cheer. And democracy, if we think it's worth keeping, needs protection. It's fragile. President Biden said that in his inaugural address the other day. I, I think I could have written parts of it for him because he was certainly kind of singing my song. Democracy is fragile and we, we came through great peril, but that does not mean the danger is over yet. So this book is very much a book about understanding the past and how it shapes the present, but also warning, clear warning signs for maintaining a democracy if we want to keep it. Being in the midst of this, you, you kind of feel how, you know, complicated this issue is, right? And understanding where, where are the boundaries or the erosions of democracy that, that cause it to tip over, right? Like that kind of hit that bifurcation point. And um, I think I read a teacher who tweeted, you know, right after the insurrection, the, 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 one of their, her students asked, is this the beginning of something or the end of something? And that, I thought that was a really profound question. And I think that's something that we have to figure out because we've certainly seen a lot of our democratic norms erode in recent times. And it's nothing, I, I, I'm very interested in, in what lessons we learn for the, for the, the public and the people that, that support people who are authoritarians or dictators. Because, you know, one of the things that I, I feel like keeps getting lost is we have these videos of the insurrection, right, that happened at the Capitol. And we're, we're seeing fewer videos or, or, or conversation about the legislators who still voted after that to do what the insurrectionists wanted, which was throw out the votes from a democratic election. And, 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 you know, we never even had the current outgoing president, you know, the outgoing president never even mentioned clearly the, the name and conceded the election still hasn't as he's left office. So, so can you, can you walk us through those lessons that you learn from these situations, both from the dictators, but also from the people around them in the public? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what the book strong man is essentially about. Um, I mean, the reason we, obviously we, we study history is to not to get the dates and the battles and the speeches, right. But to see what, what forces shaped where we are today and obviously to, to learn those lessons and, and make use of them. Um, before I do that, though, I want to say one thing, because you said you were on hiatus and we're doing this on Zoom, of course. And a year ago, I personally had never been on Zoom. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, life has been utterly transformed for all of us in every way by the pandemic and nobody more so than teachers. So I wanna say this right up front very, very carefully and genuinely that what I have seen teachers do in the past year in terms of continuing their passion, their dedication, their devotion 
to their students and to their, their profession has been heroic as far as I'm concerned. And the kids have been heroic and the parents have, you know, really been along for the ride. And I know how stressful it is. This is actually not a big deal for me in terms of staying home because I've always worked at home. So there was no a big adjustment for, for me, but I have been in so many classrooms via Skype or Zoom over the past few months. And I'm just so incredibly grateful and respectful of what teachers are doing under these extraordinary circumstances. So I just want to give you all a, sh a big shout out. It's, I think it's an important idea. Thank you. To the lessons of, of this, this book. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that none of this, uh, when we speak about the United States and democratic norms coming under stress, I have to say, first of all, this didn't happen for, start four years ago. This is part of a long time process. We have never been a nation of voters. We've never been a nation of civically engaged people. In our best years, you know, we get between 50 and 60% uh, of the eligible voters participating in a presidential election. It drops down to 40% in uh, the midterms, probably even lower in local, many local elections. So we are not a nation of voters. The question of how we generate civic engagement is a real serious question right now. That goes along with the fact that we've had many, many years now of chipping away at some of the institutions, democratic institutions, that we all sort of took for granted to some degree. Certainly, some of it is political, gerrymandering, which exists in both parties, the assault on voter rights and suppression of voter lists in many states, which primarily has come from one of the two parties, obviously. The complete breakdown of uh, bipartisanship in the Congress also is something that, you know, a plague on both houses for that. Then amplified and magnified by two Supreme Court decisions. And I think we're right around the anniversary of the Citizens United decision, which unleashed this torrent of spending in the political, into the political arena, unleashed the, the fact that corporations and individuals could really spend freely, that corporate uh, campaign spending was a form of protected free speech. So all gloves were off in, in terms of campaign financing. That's transformed the politics greatly. Then we had the end of the Voting Rights Act under another Supreme Court decision with the rather a preposterous notion when you go back and think about what was written at the time that racism didn't really exist any longer and these, these protections for uh, black voters in the former Confederacy were no longer necessary. It's, it's almost a laughable decision except that it had real impact on American voting. Uh, and then we've had this hyper blast of social media transforming the landscape alongside cable television, which came along in the last 30 years, social media more or less in the last 10 or 15 years. All of these things existed before social media amplified them, magnified them a thousand times, a million times, so that the guy who used to say, 
crazy things to his friends in a garage somewhere, and maybe they'd mimeograph some pieces of paper and tack them up on a telephone pole. We're saying the same things now on social media, and it was getting picked up by a million people. So the landscape has absolutely changed in many ways in America and around the world. The other difference is that we've had a really, really backsliding in terms of democracy around the world. When I wrote Don't Know Much About History 30 years ago, it was that moment when the Soviet Union was crumbling, the Berlin Wall was about to come down, apartheid had been vanquished almost unbelievably, and we're talking about the early 90s here, and uh, the British and the Irish even seemed to be speaking to each other. Uh, so there was this moment when we thought, oh, democracy is going to flourish. This is the beginning of a new era in history. It didn't last long, unfortunately. We saw the rise of authoritarians in, certainly in Russia, then in some of the former Eastern Bloc nations that had become democratic capitalist nations going backwards, Poland, Hungary. We see it in the Philippines, in India, in South America. Uh, this has been a, a regression of democratic progress around the world. And then it was heightened by the fact that the United States, which used to be a voice for democracy around the world, had its voice quieted in the past four years. Whereas people like from the, the Bushes thinking that they were going to introduce democracy into Iraq, of course, followed by Barack Obama, a, a true prophet of, of democracy around the world. This was all pushed backwards by the previous administration. So we are, are, were at this perilous moment in American history, in global history, where democracy was around the, uh, under assault around the world. And the history that I show in Strongman is how quickly it can disappear and how fragile it is. And that's the moment we're, we're looking at right now in this country. And I think this history is so important to understand for that reason. I feel like we're kind of in the middle of in the Empire Strikes Back in the uh, Star Wars saga. <laughs> that's kind of where, with the, I guess, the, the, what they call it, the rise of illiberal democracies. Is that the, the term that the polls uh, <laughs> that the Eastern Europe has been using. Uh, that, that's Great. right. I mean, the, the empire did have a republic, uh, had a Senate, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, that... Which but, also fell. So without getting too far down the Star Wars rabbit hole, which would, would be we're, fun, but... Uh, I apologize. I, uh, no, that, no, that's okay. Because we're, we're, never in the, we're never in the middle of it either, because it seems to be infinite. Uh, that That's... That Star Wars will go on to many, many galaxies far, far away. <laughs> As we kind of talk about the the ways that democracy have eroded, I, I am reminded, I recently read uh, David Blight's Frederick Douglass biography, which was tremendous. And I, 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 I honestly think about it all the time. And, you know, and also in addition to having recently read uh, Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped, you know, you, you often think democracy for who is, I think, an important thing that comes up, too. And as you brought up at the beginning of your points, uh, Kenneth, you talked about, you know, we have a lot of laws that are preventing certain groups from voting. So I also think it's interesting to think in the United States, too, how, you know, when the insurrection happened, a lot of people of color, you know, black people, you know, indigenous people and other people of color who 
I follow on Twitter were very much less surprised, it seemed, than white people because they've been facing voter suppression, the erosion of democracy. And I think back to that Frederick Douglass book where he talked about the, the end of Reconstruction, right, in 1877, and he called it peace among the whites, right, was his phrase for it, right? Uh, and, and I sometimes think about that when we think about the, what kind of democracy do we want? Because it seems like a lot of people were okay with the democracy, with gerrymandering, with redlining, with um, voter suppression and voter ID laws. But once it started to affect their democracy, then, then they started to be worried, which seems like a very important issue for maintaining a strong democracy, right? The more equitable democracy is, it seems like the stronger and the less likely it would be to slide into authoritarian and be and be allowed dictators to have more power. I don't know, but maybe it's the United States is different than other countries because of our multicultural, um, you know, uh, population. It's a really a lot to unpack there. I guess it's a really interesting question. And let me let me start first with just an an impressionistic answer to that, which is yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people in this country. A lot of white people in this country, and it speaks to the question of privilege, thought, you know, hey, the democracy is rolling along. And, and it, because they had never been through any of the struggle that it, uh, that it took to win those votes, you know, every step along the way has been painful and difficult to add new voting groups, black men after the Civil War women finally 100 years ago, only 100 years ago. I was among the first 18-year-olds to vote, I'm happy to say, in 1972. So it's, you know, it's been a very, very slow, slow process that we open up. And then we also have the problem that a lot of people just don't care. And I think they don't care because they are ignorant of the history the sacrifice that did go into winning the votes. To me, growing up as the child of one of those guys who put on a uniform after Pearl Harbor, going to the voting booth on election day was you know, sacred stuff. And so I always had that sense of it, but I'm not sure that how widely shared that was in this country. And that's part of the idea of taking democracy for granted, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, as I said, 30 years ago. We've taken democracy and certainly voting for granted in this, in this country. And when you see and hear someone like the late, great John Lewis, and you look at him bloodied and beaten for the right to vote, you have to understand that history to understand what the value of that vote is. So I think that perhaps one of the most encouraging things that I saw in this year, that under the extraordinary circumstances of voting in a pandemic, enormous numbers of people were willing, more than willing, they were eager, they were aggressive to go out and, and make their voices heard this year. And so it was an extraordinary turnout. And I think that part of that does reflect the sense of history that was being called out. But a lot of that goes back to the reckoning that we began to face last spring and summer with the death of George Floyd, which was a true moment of reckoning for this country, for many, many, especially for many white people in this country, to 
see this man murdered over the course of nearly nine minutes. It, it shook, finally shook the conscience of the country in a way that all of the other deaths that we have seen and recorded and known about for a very, very long time were not able to do. So a, a lot of things came together. And then in particular, they came together in the face of the most autocratic president in our history. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he was not a strong man. I think he was a strong man wannabe. He certainly knew all the tactics of the strong man, which I describe in the book, the nationalism and the populism, the blaming the grievances of the country on a single group, immigrants, a religious group, Muslims, looking at the crisis and saying, I alone can fix this, making the crisis work worse or creating crises in some respects, and then uh, insisting that law and order would be the response to this. So these are all the typical techniques that the strongman that I write about in, in this book have used to gain power. They are four for four. He goes down the list. You know, the United States has never had a strongman. We've never had a dictator. We've had strong leaders, but we never had anyone who really threatened the very fabric of the government. In our greatest moment of crisis, 1861, we get Abraham Lincoln. People called him a dictator at the time, but he certainly wasn't. And his ultimate goal was to expand freedom, not restrict it. The second greatest crisis in our history, the Great Depression leading into World War II, uh, our country gets Franklin D. Roosevelt, whereas Italy had turned to Mussolini and Germany had turned to Hitler. So we do have a tradition of uh, exceptionalism in the sense that we don't have a tradition of strongmen. And that was part of what the founders feared. And I write about this in the book, of course, the what what was the creation of American democracy under a republic that did create the conditions that restricted and held back the, uh, the possibility of a strong man. Because certainly those men in 1787 feared that. They worried about how much power they were putting in the hands of a single man and giving him command of the army. They knew that most republics really came to a bad end, and often with a, a, a general marching in to take over. Uh, they were well aware, and they, they were students of the Roman Republic in particular. They knew, of course, that Caesar marched in and essentially ended the Republic. So there's, there's a lot of history that's packed into that, but it also all came to a head in this moment in, in this country between the pandemic and a wannabe authoritarian, and the Black Lives Matter movement moving into a higher degree of uh, American consciousness because of the uh, of this uh, those specific incidents. So a lot of things happened all at once to really change the very ground we were standing on as we approached this recent election. So when we talk about someone like Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, we're talking about like Germany and Italy that both had democracies. Like what was the turning point there? 
that's a really good and important point that a lot of people still don't realize or don't know. Italy had, uh, I, Mussolini comes first in the book after a, a brief uh, uh, introduction and a little history of the background of how democracy grew. Mussolini comes first because he was first. Italy, post-war, post-World War I, economic chaos, political and social chaos, fears of the communists and the Bolsheviks and the socialists coming into Italy and taking over. Mussolini is a member of the Italian legislature. It's a constitutional monarchy with a constitution. It had existed for about 60 years, but always somewhat troubled because of Italy's specific political troubles. Into this, Mussolini threatens that he's going to bring the government down with a march on Rome. It's a complete bluff. October 1922. He's not even there, in fact. I'm reminded, of course, when we had this insurrection here, the president said, I'll be with you. But in fact, he wasn't. Very much like Mussolini saying he was going to lead these, uh, this march into Rome, he actually happened to be hours away in Milan. And before the march even takes place, the king of Rome, uh, the king of Italy, calls Mussolini and says to him, will you be prime minister? Call off your troops, call off your men. Now, in fact, that insurrection probably could have put, been put down very easily by the Italian army. And they were about to declare martial law to do that. The king decided not to, and he chose to turn to Mussolini to form a new government. Mussolini does that. He had been given what he never could have expected. The country was given to him on a platter. And within a year, basically, he had destroyed democracy in Italy and turned it into a one-party state under his fascist party. Hitler watched this, tried the same thing about a year later in the fall of 1923 with his beer hall putsch. Again, Germany has a constitutional democracy, a constitution very progressive by many standards of the time. The women could vote in Germany before they could vote in the United States or in the United Kingdom. Hitler tries this in 1923. It's suppressed. He goes off to prison, sentenced for five years. He only serves about nine months. During that nine months, he writes Mein Kampf. He eventually grows the Nazi party to the point that he is running for president of Germany. He loses. But again, a situation of crisis, political crisis, political in instability. The German president asks Hitler to become the chancellor, which is the equivalent of prime minister. And Hitler also happily agrees, having seen what Mussolini was able to accomplish. And in a very short space of time, Germany's constitutional democracy was gone, also crushed under the heel of a one-party autocratic dictator who then quickly took the country down uh, this disastrous, murderous road that we know as the Holocaust. So when we look at these stories that you're examining in this, we're, it looks like we're seeing that there's some sort of crisis that is involved or some sort of instability, whether it's political or economic, and that seems to kind of create an avenue for someone to, to step in as, a, as an autocrat. Yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. There, are, I'm sure there are examples of uh, of coups and dictators taking over in a relatively calm, peaceful uh, situation. But it's not typical, and it's certainly not typical of the five cases I present here. 
Italy in post-war World War One Italy, uh, economic and political chaos. Germany in the 1920s, also after World War One. Very crucial, by the way, to understand the role of World War One in shaping some of these men and shaping the world in which they came to power. World War One was significant in all five of these cases, quite honestly. Uh, specifically, Hitler and Mussolini had served in World War One. World War I was a major factor in the Russian Revolution that eventually brings Lenin and Stalin to power. Lenin dies in 1924, and Stalin becomes unchecked master of the Soviet Union. Again, out of the, the disaster that was going on in Europe at the time with a, a world war has an impact even in China because the after the Chinese, after the war is settled, pieces of China are given to Japan by the victorious European allies who decided to carve up the world. And so all of these things fed into the discontent that exists existed in all of these countries. Of course, in Russia and China, you have massive poverty and discontent among the millions and millions of peasants uh, so it's not so much an, a crisis of, of the moment, although there were, in both of those cases, specific crises, but this was just the centuries of degradation uh, that most people felt under imperial rule, the czar in Russia and the emperor in China. So is there a connection between Saddam Hussein and World War I? Is yes, there is. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a big way, absolutely, because after World War I, uh, the British and the Allies decided to redraw the maps of the world, as you probably know. And this place that was existed as Mesopotamia was carved up into these rather arbitrary countries that we know today as Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria. And of course, in doing that div division, the Kurdish people had no homeland and were kind of divided amongst three or four other nations. So Iraq was this creation of the British, and for a while the British dominated it. They installed a, a, a sort of puppet monarch. But all of that tension, that religious tension, the political tension, the difficulties, the tribal animosities, that was all built into Iraq's foundation as an artificial creation of the, uh, of the British in the aftermath of, of World War I. So everything, almost everything can go back to the Versailles Treaty, if you want to put it that <laughs> simply. And that's, that's why, you know, you say, you say that word to kids and they say, Versailles Treaty is so boring. But uh, there's not a place in the world, basically, today that was unaffected by the decisions that were made in 1919 at Versailles and the year after um, by the victorious allies after World War I, of course, coming on the tail of the Spanish flu. And that- Everything's is, connected. Everything's connected. And, and, and it's really fascinating to me to find those connections. Um, I think probably when we talked about more deadly than war, we talked about the fact that Woodrow Wilson had the flu while he was in Versailles. And it may have affected his reasoning, his judgment, his will to make sure that he got what he wanted, which he did not get. So the history is always connected. And it's fascinating to me to see those strings kind of carry out going across the world and around the world. 
One more example of that I'll, I'll add here, and I talk about this in the book in the Mussolini chapter. Italy was, of course, among the victorious allies in World War I. They fought against Germany and Austria. It's a, Germany and Austria were allied, of course. Italy sent a delegation to the peace treaty in Versailles. They wanted a piece of Austria that they had been fighting for for all this time and lost many hundreds of thousands of men. Woodrow Wilson turns down the delegation from Italy that happened to be headed by a man named Guglielmo Marconi. You probably know the name Marconi as, and you think, oh, that's the guy that invented the radio. And indeed, he's, uh, he's attributed, that's attributed to him. Um, like most inventions, it's a, always a more complicated story. But Marconi at the time was certainly the most famous Italian in the world, a, a true celebrity scientist. He was, you know, I guess the, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates of his day, um, really well known and very wealthy. Uh, he was really uh, upset that Woodrow Wilson had turned down his request for territory. And so he went back to Italy and joins the fascists. He became very, very close to, uh, to Mussolini. He was a scientific advisor to Mussolini, invited Mussolini to uh, be his best man at his second wedding, which Mussolini did not do, but just to indicate the, the connection. And, you know, there are statues and places named for Marconi all over this country. I'm sure that most people would not know that he was a fascist who was completely aligned with Mussolini. Oh my. So your last book obviously was on the Spanish flu and your current book is on strongman. Where's your research taking you next? What should I fear next? <laughs> uh, I'm writing a book about knitting. No, no. Uh, <laughs> Good. Uh, that's, that's the world we need. We need more knitting. Yeah. Uh, I am knitted, knit, I, knitted I, into being. I am reminded uh, of knitting, I suppose, t today, and I don't know when this will air, but uh, this is actually the fourth anniversary of the Women's March, which was one day after the inauguration in 2017. And I have to say that it seems like not four years ago, but 40 years ago. And I, I'm thinking of knitting because, of course, the pink pussy hats became the, the symbol of the Women's March. Women and other people knitting those hats for that, that march. What an extraordinary day. But, oh God, that seems like so long ago now. These four years have really been long, hard years for the country. And that's brings us back to, I guess, the central point here that democracy certainly dodged a bullet in the election. And then just two weeks ago, I was, uh, I'm speaking a day after the inauguration, that was two weeks to the day from this murderous band of insurrectionists going into the Capitol building some of them clearly with intent to harm people. And obviously uh, a police officer was killed and others died in circumstances still unclear. But what an extraordinary thing that two weeks after that moment that we watched with appalling disbelief, I suppose, that this was going on and that there were congressmen in that building who then came back and voted 
to give those people exactly what they had come to that building to do. It's an astonishing thing to think that two weeks later, we had this decorum, dignity, decency, and the trappings and ritual of another presidential inauguration. So democracy certainly dodged a bullet in the election and then in the insurrection, but I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And that's why this is, requires constant vigilance. Um, Hitler tried in 1923 and failed, went away for a while, wrote a book, came back a few years later, more famous, more notable. He won uh, much bigger attention around Germany because of his failed insurrection. So that's you know, one clear lesson from history that there's a danger even in the failed insurrection. And that's why we always should know our history. Do you think there'll one day be a book called The Wednesdays of January, which will just be about uh, the insurrection, impeachment, and uh, the inauguration? I have no idea what's going to happen this Wednesday, but I'm assuming it's going to start with an I. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, yeah let's, Michael. <laughs> Hopefully. Ice cream. Yes. Ice cream party. Ice, ice cream Jerry Wednesday. Doesn't. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's interesting. Of course, uh, history is wonderful for telling us where we've been and, and what we might do best, but it's not a, a perfect crystal ball. It's certainly warning signs. And that's, that's certainly what I've meant this book as, but I think it's also important to remember that, uh, what I've tried to do in this book is something I've done and tried to do in all of my books, which is to humanize a subject that is often treated as in textbooks as awfully deadly, dry numbers, statistics, eye glazing numbers. And uh, these are essentially human stories. And by humanizing men like Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin, I am not trying to present them in a in a, some better light, uh, but humanizing I think is important because it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying, "Oh, these guys were monsters," um, but they're not monsters. They were human beings, and they were human beings who convinced a lot of other human beings to go along with them. And then what they did to other human beings was unspeakable, and that. The crimes in this book are unspeakable. It was in many ways the most difficult book I've had to write because I had to really confront the dreadfulness of what happened. And obviously most people think Hitler and Holocaust. Uh, Stalin killed many, many more people before World War II even started. Mao Zedong is probably responsible for more deaths than any of them. So these are important things to remember. And it's also important to remember that today Mussolini Stalin and certainly Mao have many admirers, people who look to them as great father figures, in a sense, national leaders. People line up for hours to walk past Mao's uh, mausoleum in, in Beijing. So that's an important thing to remember, too, that we might think of these people as horrific, murderous dictators, but they are still considered great men in, in, uh, to many people in their countries. I think, you know, one thing that you're saying that I also got, Zainab Tufeci is a professor at the University of North Carolina who's from Turkey and has written about you know, defining coups and authoritarianism yes. and these things. It'd be a great, it's a great footnote to your historical reading because she talks about today, right? A lot of the, what the reality of understanding 
you know, what a coup looks like. And her one of her points, I think, seems to be similar to yours. Take it seriously, right? Even if some of the things seem buffoonish or, or silly or just a minor blip, her big lesson she'd learned is to take it seriously. And so I, I highly recommend her article. It was in The Atlantic called This Must Be Your First. And her point was a lot of Americans don't have any experience or knowledge about what coups look like. And so they struggle to define them. And so I think that's the also a lesson of history, right, is that that we don't know what's going to happen. So we better take the threats very seriously. And so I think t- classroom teachers, you know, I think that's really interesting when you take it more seriously by studying history and seeing how this played out. Absolutely. And uh, by the way, I, I know that piece and I know the work very well. And that was a brilliant piece. She talked about her first, I think, being in Turkey, being a little girl and uh, and being at the airport and all of a sudden the plane stopped flying. Yeah, and that is a, a wonderful way to humanize this story. One of the other things that I tried to do in this book is tell the accounts uh, of the people who were upstanders. You know, a lot of kids know the way to, uh, they, they've learned this idea of confronting bullies. You're a, either a collaborator, you go along with the bully, maybe out of self-preservation, or you're a bystander. You're not going to go along, but you're not, either, you're not going to get involved either. And, you know, and that's the classic, I, I, I didn't say anything when they came for the Jews, but then they came for me, a, a quote that I include in the book. And then there's the bystander. I, I'm sorry, the upstander. And the upstander is obviously the person who resists, who says no to the bully. Unfortunately, in these five stories, the upstanders don't do well. They don't come out well, including uh, people like Hans and Sophie Scholl, who were members of the teen- teenagers who started the White Rose movement to uh, fight back against the Nazis. They were both caught, tried, and executed by guillotine. But there are also the stories of people who grew up in Mao's uh, under Mao's uh, cultural revolution and saw what happened. Uh, and, and so those kind of eyewitness human accounts, I think, are very important for us to understand that this is ultimately a human story. And then the very last chapter of the book, more to your point, uh, Dan, is, is called Never Again. We like to say, oh, never again about you know, the Holocaust. Or the, but never again has happened many times again since World War II. And so if we are really going to believe that we don't want this to happen again, there are some very, very important steps one has to take. And it really starts with asking, you know, what would you do? <laughs> and that's a hard question. I don't answer that for people. I, I pose it. And I pose that to, to, you know, this is a book written for young people, but I think they should be thinking about these things because they may be confronted by this in their lives. We've seen it in our lifetime right up close here in the United States. And it will it's not just going to go away. And if we think that it will just go away, I think that's being dangerously naive. All right, folks, we can't just knit. We have to read history books, talk about this stuff and do something. I think that's a a good lesson. So Kenneth uh, C. Davis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. We've been friends and talking about this for quite a while now, and it's always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
And just to reiterate, the name of the book is called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Kenneth, so where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, the easiest place to find me online is at the website don'tknowmuch.com. That's all one word. And I post there uh, stuff that's going on in the news and information about my books. And also my offer, which I've been making for many years, to visit your classrooms virtually. Uh, That is an offer to teachers. I'll come in for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, talk about one of my books or some of my books and uh, take questions from uh, from the students, and it's a not a lecture; it's a conversation. And I really get as much out of that myself as I think the kids do. But it's been wonderful for me to meet so many young people, and I'm very very encouraged by this. Over the past few years, they are engaged, they're interested, they're articulate, they're savvy, a complete opposite image of what we often get from the media about American teenagers. And I've also been so remarkably impressed by how interested they are in understanding their place in this democracy and actually taking action. Um, and as I, I spoke about this earlier in our, our conversation, the idea that people who don't have a vote still have a voice. And I've been so impressed by the young people who have been involved in climate strike or Black Lives Matter or the gun movement like the Parkland kids who survived that tragedy. So I have enormous hope, even when I'm in pretty bleak moments, I would, uh, and one kid even told me, explained to me the phrase radical hope, which I really had never heard before and really liked. So I've, the young people in this country in, in the last year or so have really given me radical hope. And I appreciate that. So the website is don'tknowmuch.com. The Twitter handle is at Kenneth C. Davis. And you can He's find not, the- He has not been banned yet. <laughs> <laughs> I try and be very good. <laughs> and you can, you know, find me in your bookstore or, or your library. So, and we, we appreciate so much all the work that you do, Kenneth. You are so giving of your time and we've seen that over the years. And so pick up those books, use them in class, teach history. And just thank you again for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. My pleasure. Stay safe. Be well. Mask up. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and to be honest with you, we do too. Hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're on Twitter and sometimes Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, click on that subscribe button and subscribe for your friends too. We are everywhere podcasts are, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. This is subscribing for your friends means stealing their phones. <laughs> and hey, take a break from knitting and give us a five-star review and we will read it on the air. I and mean, we'd like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills on this episode. You can find Thanks, me Seitz. on Twitter. I'm not banned yet. I'm at Dan Kutka. And I'm at 42 Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.